You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. So today we are going to be discussing a a pattern that we've both observed independently in our work, which is that a lot of young people who are struggling with this kind of rapid onset gender dysphoria are having a hard time with the process of growing up. And there are so many peripheral issues that relate to this, including things like early periods and asking parents to intervene on your behalf and what it might mean if a kid transitions and puberty blockers. So we're going to dive into all of this today. This is a very rich discussion that I haven't heard many people talk about. Yeah, I can see why so many kids don't want to grow up. There's a a few things have happened kind of on a societal level insofar as we are glorying in youth and childhood like never before. We're we're creating dreams in childhood like the, the extraordinary effort around Christmas and Santa Claus and Disney and creating these dreams around fairies and Easter bunnies and stuff. I swear to God, my child, my children who are just, you know, of this generation, they're 12 and 13, the the, the depth of creating the reality of a fantasy, like a really, truly like I didn't take Easter Bunny seriously for even a second when I was a kid. It's like, yeah, yeah, give me my Easter egg. But these (laughs) these kids are really falling into they genuinely believe there's footprints in the snow for for Santa. There's everything. And I think we have indulged it as the adults because it's gorgeous. And we've watched too many Hollywood movies and stuff like that. At the very same time, we haven't really sold adulthood to them. Mm. Mm-hmm. So why they've had this dream of a childhood, they've been kind of led, I think, to believe. And then all the fun stops and they're, they're choosing. No, I, I don't. They don't have the want to grow up. Yeah. They don't have the desire yeah. to grow up. That's frightening to me. It's so interesting. I mean, I hadn't really thought of it from that angle. But as you say that, I'm I'm thinking about those are things I've heard a lot from clients that the drudgery of adulthood is not something they're excited for at all. And it's it's odd because I'm not really sure exactly why that is. I remember being a kid, I could not wait to grow up because I wanted the freedom. I, was I wanted just the independence. About to say, I bet there was things you wanted that adulthood was going to give, which is the yeah. big thing. When I was uh, in Ireland, the big thing was you were going to be able to get out. You were going to get your own flat, independence, yes. be able to have sex with people, be able to be out late at night, come home whenever you want. That freedom. Now, mm-hmm. these days, we've created a situation where honestly, they can have that. They can have that at 16. They can go out and they can come back in. They can... There's a freedom around who they can have to visit and who they can stay in these kind of semi dens they have in their bedrooms in their in their childhood home. So there isn't the need, there isn't the boundaries, there isn't the strictness 
I think. Hmm. Why do you think there is? Uh, Well, maybe it's a different cultural context. And again, you know, the sample of young people and families I work with come from a particular type of background, a particular cohort. But I find that these kids are tracked constantly through GPS apps on their phones. They are not interested in getting their driver's licenses and getting out there and partying with their friends. No. And families tend to be very, very involved and know every move, breath, and thought that the kid has. So while I think there are probably some ways in which our culture has opened up, kids are a lot less infantilized in some respects. I think in others... These kids are having a hard time growing up and they don't really want to grow up. Yeah, and maybe I misspoke a little bit. I just find that the teenage bedrooms are almost, they're settling in for 10 years. There's a real (laughs) feeling of, I'm doing up my bedroom. And I'm like, why are you doing up your bedroom? Surely you should be thinking about moving out, not doing up your bedroom. So they've they've created this home within the home in their bedroom Mm. and they have all the comforts and they don't see any desire to, to get out there isn't a feeling I bet you you were pushing against the boundaries get me out get me out get me freedom and that's a healthy it turns out that's a healthy desire because that makes you want to grow up and they just don't seem to be I think they've been sold this concept that adulthood is full of stress and strain lots of serious decisions I have to say since I've started seeing clients and meeting people more and more from the US I really think wow the college system creates a lot of pressure on those kids I really think oh my god you're really landed into it it costs an awful lot of money and it's like don't mess this up everything is being counted what you do in the summer, mm. what you do beforehand, what you do in a gap year. It's all been counted. It feels relentless and it feels very, very serious. And yeah. I think I can see how they just think, I, I don't want this. It's too frightening. It's too serious. I'd rather be childlike at home on a video game, just kind of not doing yeah. all of that. I think the stakes feel really high when young people think about becoming an adult, especially because of the high academic pressures and the type of um, kind of expectations that schools hold for kids, parents hold for kids. And look, I don't in any way think that we should make it easier uh, academically. That's not what I'm saying. But the kind of the way in which your academics encompass everything in your life and kids, I think, have become like less well-rounded. And what's what's odd is that there are there is an emphasis on doing all of these extracurriculars to put it on your application, but it seems like a means to an end rather than, you know, pursuing what you're genuinely interested in, which has a different kind of feeling tone to it and a different set of motivators behind it, I think. Are you saying like that they go into the college that they can get into rather than what suits them or what are, what are you saying there? Well, I'm kind of thinking about the way that kids are like, you know, in order to get into a good college, I need to not only have a perfect GPA and perfect SAT scores, but I also have to have all of these extracurricular activities on my application. So I have to volunteer at this place and I have to do this club and this activity. And those are sometimes things that kids just want to add as as 
fillers on the application rather than saying, you know, I've always been really passionate about so-and-so activity. I think I'll pursue that. Oh, and I get to put that on my resume, right? It was a lovely idea at the start. Oh, these well-rounded individuals with their lovely addition and look at their charity work. Oh, and then suddenly it started getting gamed. I've been reading Mm. Oliver Berkman's book. It's brilliant, actually. It's called 4,000 Weeks. Can you guess why it's called 4,000 Weeks? No. Go on. It, how many it. weeks? How many weeks you're in high school? No. No, 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 not high school. <laughs> I've been testing everybody on that one. So he called it 4000 weeks. It's a, such a good title. And it's about time management and how you manage your life. And okay. therefore, the average lifespan is 4,000 weeks. Yeah. You see, I'm so good at numbers. I thought that was the number of years in high school. Honestly, I'm asking loads of people that and everybody's coming out with crazy stuff like that. You know what I mean? So we have no concept that it's only 4,000 no, weeks. I have no concept but that's not of numbers. Many. But he wrote a really good, it's a really good book and I really recommend it. But he wrote a really good kind of, um, kind of, what's the word? A piece about hobbies and how we, you know, the beauty of a hobby, because people who do hobbies, they're not trying to get forward. They're not trying to get better. They're just doing it for the hell of it. And he's yeah. talking about Rod Stewart, the singer and how Rod Stewart is really into, by the way, railroads, you know, so he does these model railroads, very elaborate model railroads. And he's saying there's something kind of beautiful in that because it's purely for the joy of it. There is yeah. no kind of getting better, getting better scores because that ruins the concept of the hobby. The hobby Mm -hmm. is just being in the moment and hobbies as a concept is almost something we laugh at these days. It's like, it's kind of silly. It's not, it's like, what are you doing with your time? You know what I mean? We're constantly, what are you doing? How are you killing your time? How are you making, how are you making the most of your time? And those kids are tapped into that from a very young age. Like, what are you doing with your time? No hanging around. Mm -hmm. And what do they do? They check out. Because they can't quite take that pressure. And so they, they fall into their computer. So so let's just talk about how does this struggle with growing up actually show up amongst the populations of kids and families we, we're talking about. So one one thing that comes to mind, which you mentioned before we got on this call, is that kids often start questioning their identity. Maybe they decide that they feel they need to come out as trans or something. And what do they do next? Who do they ask for help? Well, usually I think they are you. Well, I don't know, because part of me thinks that they've been nurturing it like a bonsai tree in the computer for a long time. And then they tend to go towards their parents with the with the the letter on the pillow. And it's kind of now I'm going to plop that onto your lap. Parents take it away. Your problem. Right. Right. So mom (laughs) and dad, you need to call my aunt and uncle. You need to tell grandma. You need to call the school. Sort out the school, please, for me. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a way that they, not always, right? But a lot of times the kid is asking for their parents' help to bring this new identity to life. Yeah. And in a way, that's to me, that's turning left from the kind of, they were going forward into... um, into adulthood and it's a way of taking a left turn, getting, get, you know, less progress and more kind of take a turn so that you don't have to go so fast 
towards the goal of of adulthood. And when you look at, you know, eating disorders, it's incredibly similar. There's a real um, desire for a lot of people with eating disorders, not all, but it's quite noticeable. They don't want to grow up. They don't want to get bigger. They don't want to get older. They don't want sexual development. They don't want the messiness of adult engagement, the complicated grey area of adult engagement. It feels too difficult, too hard. What they'd rather do is keep their head down and get great scores because that's kind of childlike. Study hard, Mm. get great scores. Keep your head down. Don't don't get bigger, if you follow me. And that's very often a concept very deep ingrained in some people with eating disorders. And I've noticed something similar with gender. It's like stay in the fantasy world of YouTube um, good looking, very, very juvenile, um, you know, gender influencers who, who who might be 27, but they act 17 and they kind of come on with their dorky kind of face and their dorky phrases. And they're like, hi, guys. And woo, woo, woo. And it's like, that is seriously a 27 year old man. It might be a trans man, but you're like, they are so far from what I was when I was 27. They're very juvenile and um, the kids are really liking them. And I'm there mm. thinking this is a very juvenile vibe. The whole thing with the avatars and the kind of the 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 slogans and the kind of the sassy little answers that sound clever, but there there there's very little depth and very little kind of pausing reflection, maturity, a real lack of maturity in the whole feeling of of this kind of phenomenon. Yeah, I mean it's. I I always feel a little conflicted because there's this weird catch-22. I don't want to make it seem as though the internet is the only kind of medium that we should be examining here, but you also can't help but notice how much of this is fueled on the internet. And so when, when when you talk about the avatars, I really cannot help but think about you know, I've put out a lot of content whether it's on YouTube, on my channel, other people's channels, not that much on mine, other people's channels. And what I've noticed is whenever I hear some really serious objections, it's almost always somebody with a cartoon avatar. I know. And I mean, it's like the first few times I was like, oh, that's interesting. That That's just a weird coincidence. But <laughs> over time, I've come to realize there are so many people who are either actually young and using these online platforms in that way, or there's something about the the whole ideology or the belief system that keeps people in this very fantasy-based, youngish place. And cartoons seem to be such a big part of this. And I can't I can't help but but notice that. And I think there's something, you know, positive about the fact that people want to stay in touch with that fantasy part, the imagination part, especially a lot of these young people, they're illustrators, they're drawing all the time. They're like looking at anime partially because it's their hobby, but partially because maybe they're going to study that in school or something. So there's not, there's nothing wrong inherently with staying connected to that part of you. But I find it really interesting that this seems to be an overwhelming pattern and an overwhelming theme. 
And when you look at the art eras that have gone in, in days gone by, you know, there was the realists and there was the impressionists and there was the absurdists. And now there's the cartoonists. And, yeah. then, and when you look at what is a cartoon, it's 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 very kind of basic emotions. It's very basic kind of demonstrations of female, male, non-binary. It's it's a very kind of hit you with the with the sledgehammer over the head with my look. There's very little subtlety in it, very little reality in it. Do you know what I mean? The reality mm-hmm. of of kind of going down to the shop to get the dinner, to go down and you know to put it back on and put it on the cooker and all that kind of drudgery and all that the kind of mundane part of life mm-hmm. is not seen in a cartoon world. And it goes back to what, to me, it very much loops back to these kids have been given this extraordinarily fantastical kind of childhood filled with dreams and fantasies. And if you believe it, you can be it. And you know what I mean? And then bang, slap into reality of adulthood and they they, they shield from it. And they go back mm. into the cartoon world. And anime is like, let's face it, if you had seen anime or if I'd seen anime 25 years ago, you'd say that's very interesting, but it's childlike. And we've we've allowed it to be, I would argue, an adult uh, content because so many adults are doing it. But there's a childlike feel from it. Well, there is in my, in my mm-hmm. old, old mm-hmm. woman's brain. No, for sure. I mean, I, I think sometimes I have... I have become aware that there are some families who are actually incredibly pragmatic and maybe a young person feels resistant to that. You know, we also were talking about how there's a lot of young people who don't want to grow up and I've met some families or some kids who have very pragmatic parents who have always tried to explain to them that, you know, when you grow up, you have to be responsible and you have to think about, you know, how much money are you going to make in your job and this and that. Taxes. yeah, and I think like if there isn't any room or let's say if there's limited room for imagination and childlike fantasy, a kid can accidentally get lost in it and retreat completely into that fantasy. Yeah. And that's almost like a kind of reaction to to life. But I think as as adults our job is to kind of I certainly work with young people and I feel it's my job when I do is to kind of show them how great it is to be an adult, how mm. freeing it is, how liberating mm. it is, how you can be your own person and do your own thing. And I can always see it's working with them because they you can see them thinking I never thought of that. You can see it in their faces like that. that I little, know. Yeah, yeah. They haven't been given any good side to adulthood. They know their teachers and they know their parents and that's it. And they just think, wow, it's just so hard being an adult. Why would you want to be one? And I'm like, well, here's the reasons why it's fabulous. You can do what you want for starters. Like that's to me, that was the best thing about being an adult. This is kind of making me wonder about family dynamics, you know, I mean, I think we'll I don't want to veer too far in this direction, but perhaps if there are issues within the family where the parents are struggling and adulthood has not been fun for them, maybe that's something that the children end up picking up on. Maybe that's part of what's going on. If the adult isn't happy, if the adult in the child's life isn't happy, how can the child look forward to adulthood? And that's that's hard, but it's also kind of liberating for the adult, because actually, if you were enjoying life a little bit more, if you went about life so that you made sure you enjoyed life a bit more, the, the, yeah. the children will be naturally more healthy functioning because they'll think there's 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 a point to living. There's a point to growing up and being older. 
I, I, I think there's a kind of a, a very schizophrenic kind of thing has happened to an awful lot of children in our society these days is because on the one hand, they are infantilized. They have this Disney, they have the over the top Christmas and this extraordinary Hollywood childhood they have. And then on the other hand, there's a hypersexualization that's happening and they're developing a hell of a lot earlier. And that's really, really hard. So you get kids. I remember uh, my beautician, it's kind of similar. It's it's kind of a funny story. But she said to me that um, the first time um, she found out about Santa, she was drunk. Wait, about Santa? Like Santa, Santa Claus? Santa Claus. Okay, yeah. okay. She, she was she, drunk. Yeah. As an she, adult or a drunk no, child? No, she was 13. <laughs> she was okay. 13 and she was kind of... She was kind of bold enough or to be out drinking, but she still believed in Santi. And I was like, oh, I know. <laughs> but that's such a, 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 a schizophrenic, oh. if you ask me. <laughs> like, what? That's such an adult thing to be doing is yeah. to be getting drunk is quite kind of a mm. serious thing to do. And yet you're still believing in Santa Claus at the same time. And she found out and she cried all the way home. <laughs> Oh. She was, it was a very funny story what she told me. Yeah, but I really jumped sure. out of the bed because I was like, yeah. because I was lying down when she was trying to tell me. I was like, sorry, wait, sorry, tell me again. <laughs> and it's an extraordinary reflection of that generation. Yeah. That they could be so coddled that they're literally getting to the point of, of drinking while they're still believing in, in, in Santa Claus. Hmm. That's really that's really interesting. Well, you talked also a few minutes ago about they're developing earlier. You oh, have some interesting yeah. statistics. Yeah, yeah, because I followed this because I've always thought about periods being a very, very hard burden on, 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 on girls. I do think, you know, we've given a lot of talk to menopause in the last 20 years, but we have not given the corresponding thought and talk to girls hitting puberty because it's a very heavy burden that just gets presumed they can handle it because always for thousands of years girls have handled it. Well, I would say they've handled it very badly. It's been a very difficult rite of passage. That and, and they've handled it historically at older ages. So much older. So much in, older. In 1840, the average age for Menarche, the start of um, periods, you know, the, the, the onset of periods, it was 16, 16 and a half was 16 years old yes. and 1840. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then in 1995, for example, it's 13. So, you know, that's still very young, but that would have been, let's say, my kind of era, or your era. And now it's 11. <sighs> that's, that's unbelievable. Significant. It's like and I'm hearing and I think you're hearing because we spoke about it. I'm hearing quite often of girls who are eight and nine getting their period eight. And that's too young because I know it's very well, you know, we all know it's very hard to manage having your period. There's a lot of things you have to kind of keep together just to do with kind of changing the pads and being able to manage the pads and sticking them on the knickers and all the messiness around your clothes and, you know, flooding or leaking and mm -hmm. remembering to bring your bag to the toilet, all that sort of stuff. It's a lot of faff and yeah. that does not come natural to an eight year old, a nine year old, a no, 10 year old. No. And then there's the added kind of sexualizing or kind of adultifying of a very young child, an eight mm -hmm. or nine year old who gets and I am hearing about eight year olds here in Ireland. Yeah. So this is happening. If they get their period, they are just catapulted 
into an adult sensibility, while at the same time they're watching films about Santa Claus and their Easter bunny in and all that sort of stuff. Because I know because my children are, have just been eight a couple of years ago, they believed everything. They believed everything yeah. when they were 12, let alone eight. And yet you have a period to manage. Mm-hmm. And it just feels I, so adult. Yeah, it does. And you're talking about kind of the pragmatic daily responsibilities that come with your period. But there's another side of this too, which is that if you are getting your period at 8, 9, 10, most likely your parents have not anticipated and have not told you what a period is. So I've heard stories from people who got their period young and they literally thought they were dying. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't know what it is. You don't know what's happening to you. And, you know, kids mm. are you, not prepared for that. And so that's very traumatizing to all, think that you've, you've broken and your body is like oh, bleeding to death. That's so scary for an eight or nine year old. It's too young. It's too young. I honestly think it's too young. And that's where you start thinking, well, what are we feeding ourselves? How the <laughs> hell are we getting periods so young? When is this going to stop? When are we going to? Because if we've gone from 1840, where we're 16 and a half years old, and now the average age is 11. Well, where is it going? Because yeah. where is it going to stop? When is it going to be like that is the youngest any child can get? Because right now, if it's under eight, it's considered precocious puberty. Um, for a girl, um, I think I'm in and around that anyway. But like that's eight is very, very young. It's very, very young just to understand conceptually what's going on to your body and how it's managed in society and how we, we don't madly talk about it, but we try not to be ashamed of it. And we try to be kind of proud of our bodies at the same time. And yet the little boys in your life would only laugh and not understand it and actually not even know about it and be horrified. I remember being asked by the, the little boy beside me in school, is it uncomfortable sitting on the things? And I said, uncomfortable sitting on what? And, you know, the little um, bins that they bring into the toilets for girls mm-hmm. to put their sanitary towels in. Mm-hmm. He thought mm-hmm. we went in and sat in them. We sat in the bin. Oh! <laughs> I could see why. So he'd see the bins oh. going in. And we thought that's when we'd go in and sit in the bin. I could as see that, as, as that you can like bleed on demand. Like you go and you like push a button and then your body does all its bleeding and then <laughs> you're done. Like, like, <laughs> it's like peeing and pooping. I don't think we realise. <laughs> It's an entire third bodily function <laughs> that the men don't have. We have a good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That's but very funny. I think the, the I've noticed you've noticed something different, I think, because I've heard you say it. But I've noticed an awful lot of people with gender issues having early puberty mm. and an awful lot of parents mention it. And it's I my heart just goes out to them because I just think they were they went from babyhood to adulthood. It, it's it's yeah. so babying. It's so incredibly fairy baby stuff. And then suddenly it's adult in a very yeah. extreme kind of way. I think that's really difficult for them. Well, I mean, this, this brings up the issue of puberty blockers because they have been used for this particular reason. So I think, I think there's like a, a way that, again, you know, so many people have commented on how distress tolerance is decreased and a lot of kids cannot handle distress. And there's what we're saying is there is an age at which certain type of distress probably is too much for a kid. Yeah. So getting a period at seven is probably very hard and not 
Ah, it is. Not good if we could delay it so that she could at least match her peers, be kind of on the same place as her peers. Wow. But what puberty blockers are being used for now when they're used on 14, 15, 16-year-olds is we're saying that distress that was inappropriate at 7 or 8, it's or still inappropriate. Even. Right, yeah. 7, 8, or 9. It's now still inappropriate as long as you say... I'm trans. Or the context I see it in, in is that in 9 and 10, they had the difficult periods. They grew to hate their periods. No wonder. They were too young. They weren't able. And then the concept of puberty blockers, they found trans online. They found the concept online. And then the very, very attractive concept of you can stop. You can stop. You know that messy thing every month that you've hated since you were nine that frankly has been a real burden on you. You can stop it all. So it's like they go, yeah, well, I've learned to hate it. Um. So so I can see where they, I can see why so many people really, really want to stop their periods. They hate their periods. And so many parents are just so accepting of it. It's like, um, I haven't really studied it, but it's like a phobia they have of their periods. It's a really extreme response. The, the mm-hmm. periods are mm-hmm. awful. But I think a lot has been landed on the concept of periods, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I don't... I've had kind of an interesting, in my own life, just relationship with menstruation and all of that, but I never really had difficult periods. They were a complete afterthought. I never even thought about them. Oh. So, I mean, I I know that some, and I mean, I have friends who have medical issues and their periods are absolute misery. Like they literally cannot work when they're on their period because of the excruciating pain. So it is odd that these, these biological processes hit different girls and different women so differently. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm aware that we're talking a lot about the ROGD girl yeah. presentation and growing up and what might be scary for her with her body. What do you think about the boys? Because I think boys have their own fears of growing up that yeah. are legitimate and probably contribute to some degree to their identities. I think so. I, I'm seeing it in very much in, in real life with my own my own kids my little boy's 12 and you can see that they're, they're, they're on the cusp. You can see I can I'm hearing stories a lot around, you know, around the town we live in and stuff like that, that they go from being so babyish and, you know, little boys are so babyish and then kind of porn creeps in before they're ready. And it often comes in through cartoons because it's cartoon porn. And that's what they're getting sent. And it's like, oh, this is really funny. Look what so-and-so sent me. And I'm looking at it going, Mm, that looks very precursor to porn. Um, mm, it's mm-hmm. it's it's all these bodily functions they're sending each other on the phones. Do you follow me? Can you say more? Because I mean, I, I, like, I don't know what you're uh, talking about. Kind of um, a, 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 a boy with like or a girl who's doing something crazy or who has a second arm or who has some sort of kind of weird mm. dysfunction in their Wait, body. Wait, I have two arms. Well, that's Am I a, weird? A second, <laughs> I, I did a gesture out of the other shoulder. As in they have eight fingers or they have, uh-huh. they have something mm. all about their body. You can see where it's going. It's all body stuff and it's kind of... Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say gruesome, but it's kind of like 
weird and wonderful and look what this is and look what that is. And it's kind of crazy bodies doing crazy stuff. Extremities. Cartoons? Cartoons? No, these are funny, supposed funny. I don't like them really. Funny YouTube and look what's happened here and look what this. They're kind of Mm. like they're looking at what they would say is freaky stuff. Do you follow me? Yeah, I totally get it. They're sharing it and it's also kind of giggly boyish kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, I can see where this is going. It's so obvious where this is going, mm, you know. So that's mm-hmm. not the cartoon porn. The cartoon porn is I just think it gets I've looked at it and I've studied it. The, the, the industry directs it at them. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Those boys go from watching cartoons to watching cartoon porn. And it's a very easy kind of um, drift in. Do, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, what they're showing each other on their screens, I just think is is supposed to be funny. And it's not. And I think the little boys are kind of, they're laughing away because they're obsessed with bodily functions and farting and all that sort of stuff and pooping and things like that. And then you can see, oh my God, this is exactly where it's going. I can see where this is going. That they're not dealing with periods, but they're dealing with the the easy access of watching bodies online and I think it makes them more uneasy. The giggles are uneasy how do you think it impacts them growing up? I think I'm I'm still trying to piece this together. Like I have my own ideas of what boys might be scared to grow oh, up for. Okay, I suppose I was thinking of it very much in the kind of they're they're kind of they're being almost doing it to themselves, kind of socializing their minds to it's all about the body and bodies are freaky and um giggly and there's a bit of disrespect and it's a bit seedy and dark and funny and weird. And they're all falling into a mentality around it that you think uh, this isn't exactly love and isn't this girl cute? It's a very but dirty, isn't that? Na- yeah. I mean, isn't I know, that also where they would have gone anyway? I mean, it's exactly where they went. Yeah, I remember them, but they didn't have that easy access to so mm. much content. So that's well, exactly where the boys went when I was a kid. And there were all these giggling, sniveling boys <laughs> looking at creepy <laughs> stuff. Yeah, but now they have access to look what this horse is doing to the chicken type crazy stuff. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I mean, a lot of farmyard animals, a lot of animals. And then I can see how that easily moves into porn like animals, cartoony like animals doing sexual things. It just it's all it's uh, none. It's very juvenile. And to me, it's very uh, I don't know, maybe that's because I'm a 46 year old woman, so I wouldn't particularly like the humor. And you have a son, you know, so you're probably thinking (laughs) about what you want and don't want for your son. In fairness, he doesn't. Thankfully, uh, he hasn't developed that side of him because I'd probably be reluctant to talk about it if he did. But it doesn't seem developed. But like. I just see it in society that, no, I think you were going somewhere very different, yeah. but that's where I well, got stuck. Yeah, what, that's leading me to kind of think about, um, you know, when when kids have all of this content, they're not using their imagination because the novelty, the anomaly is being fed to them through the algorithm. Yep. And I think it's natural and appropriate and necessary for teenagers to start thinking about bodies and like weird stuff that they don't really understand yet. Like starting to discover masturbation, starting to discover the concept of pleasure, starting to think, you know, 
that somebody is hot or attractive or like wondering about making out with someone or whatever. Those are like appropriate ways that we're supposed to engage in fantasy at that time. So it's interesting that these, these visual imagery and all of the stuff we now have access to takes the place of that natural wondering and that curiosity in a different direction. And I wonder, I mean, I do wonder if the real time engagement with others and the experimenting, like I remember in seventh grade, you know, kids playing truth or dare and like seven minutes in heaven and, you know, making out with someone that like all of that stuff. I know it's not happening to the same degree. I just know it's not because I talk to these kids. Oh, oh, you're factually right. The research shows that they're having less. They're not fumbling in the park. They're not kissing each other. They're not holding each other's hands. It's screen based. Right. Yeah. So so maybe part of the reason that kids are having a hard time growing up is because they don't know what to do in real life. They know how to handle adding a comment to a Reddit thread or sharing a funny picture with their friends, but maybe they don't know what to do if they like a girl and want to ask her out. I mean, I think the, the, the prospect of what we think of as adulthood, which is maybe pragmatic and also full of freedom, maybe that's too intimidating for kids. Like, freedom to do what? I'm afraid of, like, walking into the lunchroom because I'm so filled with anxiety. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to grow up and mm. have to give presentations at work or, mm. you know, ask for a raise or ask somebody out. I mean, mm. that's very scary if I, you are much more comfortable in the realm of sharing memes on the internet. Yeah, and I don't think they're even thinking of asking people out because they're... Being out is kind of anathema to them. They're more likely to be kind of, um, I don't know, do you want to play a game while you're in your sitting room and I'm in mine? It's, they're, not, they're, they're not even at a place of let's go out, let's go to a cafe or anything like that. They, they don't just don't seem to be there. They don't seem to be getting that freedom to do it. And I think they would be much better off if they were going out. I think they need a lot more physical freedom to meet other kids and then they wouldn't be so scared they would start to appreciate liberty is a really gorgeous feeling and I, th- I think they could benefit from it but to go back to those boys because you're right they've always liked it they've always liked it for, for thousands of years that's a you're right you, they, they have this bodily function kind of obsession and uh, it's a precursor so I can see where it's going I just feel that now that they have access to to extraordinary numbers of of weird stuff, and when you look at testosterone, I remember we we interviewed kind of Carol Hooven and that great book Testosterone, and you know when you actually look at what testosterone is fueled by, it's fueled by illicit transgressive novelty. So the kind of you get spikes in your testosterone rise. When you see anything new, novelty, that's why men like new women and you, know, you follow me and the illicit. And that's why an awful lot of porn hub is driven by showing something transgressive, showing novelty will always get the testosterone field person interested because it, it speaks to 
testosterone. You, do you follow me? Now, if you put that into the 11 year old who is getting an insertion of testosterone, they're going to go into the weirder, weirder. And that's why they're that's why I'm seeing so much weird stuff that they're sharing. Do you follow and me? And I, I think to be fair, that can happen to girls, too. I mean, I've talked to lots of girls who also got exposed you know interested in porn pretty young in a way that might surprise researchers i I mean i think it's really noticeable girls are definitely seeing a lot more porn reporting talking about porn in a way that our generations i don't think were that we knew porn was there but it was mostly for the boys and when we looked at it we were a little bit older they're looking at porn at a very young age or being exposed to porn it seems to me at a very young Mm -hmm. age Mm -hmm. well i want to think a little bit about the way this shows up in terms of, you know, fear of growing up within the context of a trans identity specifically. And something that I've thought a lot about is that, you know, we, we discussed at the beginning of the episode that a lot of kids will kind of rely on their parents to start the social transition process. And that's not always true because some kids test the waters with mom and dad figure out that they're not getting anywhere there and just say, well, screw it. I'm going to go on my own and I'm going to let the teachers know and I'll tell my friends myself. Um, But I would like to think about if, let's say a family was on board with social and medical transition, that puts the family in a very interesting position because just around the time when, let's say you have a 16 or 17-year-old, when they're supposed to be getting out into the world, gaining more independence, starting to learn those life skills that will give them freedom and autonomy as an adult, they all of a sudden get shuttled back into requiring the care of their parents. If you are a female with gender dysphoria and you have top surgery at 17, you're all of a sudden physically debilitated. I mean, I've had all kinds of weird medical issues, and I've had surgeries before. When you have surgery, you cannot take care of yourself. You need a lot of help. So it's inherently infantilizing. And all of a sudden, mom and dad have to kind of like take care of you again, like a little baby almost. Yeah, and there's something very attractive to thinking, I just, I can't do it. Everybody else has to do it for me. It's almost a holiday from real life. And it's like, well, I can't do it. So everybody else has to think about it. I, I, and I really think there's a I, I get strong sense of an abdication of responsibility that the parent is carrying it all. Do you know what I mean? Very often carrying. Well, who's going to look after you? What are we going to do then? How are we going to organize this? Uh, you, let's say your medical insurance and stuff like that. While the, 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 per, the child sounds very sassy and organized, ultimately hasn't thought about it as deeply as maybe an adult would and is kind of there's a there's a kind of feeling of well it, it's everybody else's problem that that's the the feeling i get from it and it, it frightens me because there's something very um dysfunctional in not taking responsibility for yourself and i see it more and more and more also in the kind of lack of interest in the kind of the medical long-term medical consequences it's just like, I'm not going to read that because it makes me feel uncomfortable. And it's like, no, no, you, you, you can't. That's, that's, not, that's not part of the equation. If you take a decision that has huge long-term medical consequences, well, part of that decision is to assess those. And there's a kind of a childlike, no, 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 that upsets me. 
So I'm just not going to deal with that now. Now, I think that's a societal kind of we really badly kind of uh, told people that if it feels bad, don't do it. And if it feels good, do it. And we've kind of sent them down this awful primrose path where they're kind of thinking life is just a, a dream and you just have to not dwell on the negative as opposed to like you don't have to dwell on it, but you do have to face it. Yeah, I, I often say to families, like, the more recalcitrant your child is and refusing to discuss the issues and claiming that they they have got it all sorted out and they don't need to discuss it, the more insecure that kid probably is about their identity. Because when you are confident about something and you know who you are, you have the capacity to examine the issue from lots of directions. You have the ability to defend yourself, you know, calmly. I mean, if somebody is, you know, attacking you, it's different. But most of the time, I'm talking about very benign questions that a parent may want to ask their yeah. kid. And the kid is absolutely refusing to even have the conversation. And I've heard parents say she literally ran away crying. Like, now, ran away. That's a stray and, example of, of a person who's refusing to grow up. Yeah, because, you know, I find that kids who have an appropriate level of um, separation from their parents, they can actually hold that tension. They could say, you know, I get that my mom and dad, they kind of see me as their daughter, and, like, that's who I am to them, but you know, it's okay. Like we love each other and we may not see eye to eye, but at the end of the day, I have to live my own life. Yeah. I'm going to do what I need to do. And that's probably not comforting to the parents because it means the parents can't stop them from transitioning, but that's actually a much healthier stance than a kid who can't even talk about it because they're so desperate for their parents' approval. So it's an odd kind of thing here where the more childlike and desperate the kid is for their parents' approval, the less ready they actually probably are for making any big medical decisions or, or even for knowing fully like what their identity is. That's a really good point, because if, if parents can, can be aware that the, 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 the kind of openness to discussion is a sign of maturity... Yeah. And the closing down of discussion is a sign that they're not yet able to make this decision and to kind of communicate that with the child and to, to say your closing down doesn't instill me with confidence. Your determination to just say a slogan does not mean that you're ready. It means you're not ready. It actually inherently means you're not ready because you can't have a, a, a kind of a mature discussion about it. But, you know, there's a really interesting phenomenon in this generation which is fascinating when you think of all the other kind of youth movements like the hippies and the punks, they they moved out, they found their tribe, they hung out in their squats and their whatever and they did their thing and they left their parents behind. They understood, yeah, my parents are the last generation, I'm hanging out with the new movement, I'm a hippie, I'm a punk, I'm rocking it, moving forward as in with their peers. And there's something about this generation who keep on stay at home and keep on trying to convince their parents to be of the, their generation or something like that. There's some sort of they won't stop trying to convince yeah. their parents rather than thinking, yeah. I'm out, I'm, I'm off with my, my new 
kind of peers because that's the natural thing that's what one should be doing from around well, 17 18 yeah i mean i think i mean i i i can say that like for me our culture of origin that is not the typical pathway but i grew up here and that is very much like what i consider the typical pathway in my context but i, I you know i also want to point out that it is Probably parents who may be listening to this that have kind of estranged relationships with their children are probably feeling really conflicted because they're like, well, that's exactly what happened. You know, our kid couldn't convince us. And they basically said, screw you, mom and dad, I'm out of here. They did. And that's a very difficult place to be. And it's also developmentally common for somebody between 18 and 22-ish to kind of veer in a different direction. Maybe the relationship with parents gets very strained. And usually there's some sort of a returning, you know. Yeah. But that 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 place of independence often does have a lot of bumps in the road. I mean, it, it's ideal if a kid can say at 18 or 19 or 20, look, my parents and I agree to disagree, but I'm going in my own way. But I think more often than not, if there is a point of disagreement, what happens is... You know, you think, look, my parents don't understand me. Our views are incompatible. And I don't know if we can be in this relationship. And that's really hard because there is an element of refusing to grow up. But in some ways, that's a developmentally necessary step for some people in order to find their adulthood and their autonomy. And and you're right. And you've you've said it so well. And there's something about the estrangement. And, you know, that great article, was it in The Atlantic, where they said it was the children that are estranging from the parents much more, Tina Traster or something. Um, You know, it's the children who are estranging from the parents. That's quite notable, In, in certainly in the work I do. It's quite notable. It's not the other way around. The children are leaving and it feels in a very childlike way rather than, oh, my mom and dad, my mommy and daddy don't understand me and I'm going to hang out with my, my mates. Oh, I'll ring them every so often and, you know, do the basics. But they're annoying me these days because, frankly, they're old fashioned and they don't understand me. Rather than that, which is a fairly reasonable 18 year old roll eyes at the previous generation kind of attitude. But it's not. It's like they are transphobic, Nazi um, scum is what they are. And I can't speak to them. They can't know anything about me. I block them on every single platform and they will never know anything. And I will hurt them so deeply which to me is a very childlike response. It's a very, very childlike, as opposed to we're not getting on, but I remember you bringing me out to, you know, the birthday parties and, you know, the softness of your parents' faces. And you remember it, Mm. even when your parents have been awful, there's generally Mm. a lot of kind of connection. I don't believe these parents have been awful. I believe this is a truly massive childlike um, defence of an untenable position they've taken. That's what it feels like to me because they cannot bear any any sort of reality. And the face of their parents equals reality. And because of that, they can't see their parents. Because you know the way you can you can kind of fool A and B and C, but you can't fool your parents because they know you. So I can't see you. I can't see you because you have truth in your eyes when you look at me and I can't face that. And to me, that's really childlike extremely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah another thing that comes to mind is that um you know sometimes 
I advise families to try and appeal to the young person's best sensibilities. So, you know, you might say something like, I know you have always been someone who makes careful decisions, or I know you like to research a topic. So, you know, the mature thing to do when you're facing a big decision is to research all sides of it. Um, and there's something very um, adult-like about that approach. Like, I have the emotional capacity to handle things that may not make me happy, but that are part of the reality, and we have to grapple with the reality to make important decisions. That's very mature. But there's something about the whole affirmative model of care and some of the hyperbolic ideas that are part of it that really prevent people from being adults and growing up. And it's reminding me of, you know, what Claire Graham said, like in order for us to have dignity with, with it, when it comes to DSDs, we have to know the truth about our bodies. And that's also true for transition. And yeah. I, I've heard um, on the Transparency podcast, Mars and Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell talking about this. And Mars was talking about how incredibly angry he is that there are doctors and a medical industry that don't even want him to know the truth about his body and what medical consequences might exist from transition. And it was really powerful to hear him talk about it. And that's what the adults in the room would want to know. Wow. But it's like the whole movement prevents young people from actually stepping into that mature, responsible, curious about all sides of the problem position. Wow reality. It's like the affirmative, the gender identity affirmative model is fundamentally infantilizing any patient that is, is kind of experiencing that model. Because if I, if, if I, if you came to me and you're in distress and I just tell you, I affirm everything and we do not explore and I don't give you the respect that you're able to explore and I don't challenge you because I feel you're not able for a challenge. That's infantilizing you. It's certainly not helping you. As I always say, like your favorite auntie can give you the affirmative model, but a, a therapist shouldn't be giving it to you. You know what I mean? Because it's a very disrespectful model because it's presuming you can't take it. You can't take reality. I just have to nod along to you. You know what I mean? But I, I think it's part of this kind of we touched upon it in the in the social transition episode, but it's part of this glorifying youth. I've noticed that sometimes parents are telling me like and a lot of these kids are very intelligent and they have in inverted commas researched an awful lot on on the Internet. I find their research is often very much a YouTube guy waved a yeah. few science papers at them and right. told them it was research. I, I think the research is being kind of very uh, what's the word overblown is what I would say it is. But um, I find a lot of parents, again, are, I think, infantilizing their children by perhaps really overstating how much wisdom is in the child's kind of concepts around transitioning and identity. And I'd say that the parent might discuss it with me and I'd say, I I'm not sure it's so wise or I I'm not sure it's so well thought out because I can see a few holes in it. And they're like, yeah, but they're only 16. And for them to have that concept, it's kind of amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but you're infantilizing them saying that you're brilliant to have these concepts and ignore the massive <laughs> gaping holes in the concepts. And that's, that's interesting. what I find that comes yeah. up a lot and that we've been taught as parents and I'm guilty myself to kind of praise them, to bring them on, not to highlight their flaws and their crazy 
crazy arguments and to kind of nod along and let them find their way. We've been taught to do that as parents and that's yeah. not working out because the, the, mm. the, the children are arrogantly thinking that they have completely researched transition and that they know everything about it and they don't need to know anything difficult because actually those slogans are enough and they haven't researched it at all. They haven't even, they don't even know they haven't researched it because that's how little <laughs> yeah. they've done. That's yeah. an issue. Yeah, so it's kind of like the parents believe that their children are so sophisticated in their understanding of gender when really it's not that sophisticated. And I think part of the problem with the whole idea of like, you know, I think we need an episode on this, but like, Hmm. what can I show my daughter to help her realize that this is maybe social contagion or what can I show her? What can I, what research can I give her? And there's really no way to win with just a kind of volleying back and forth of materials because the research that the kid might've done has possibly been like, you know, the 10, 10 myths about transition and detransition that you need to know written by like a trans activist. (laughs) Written by this dorky boy who, who's technically 26 but acts 14 and he's a trans <laughs> man and he's like woo woo here's the 10 bits and he's all these <laughs> <I'm so laughs> you keep calling them dorky I was such a dork as a kid so maybe I'm <laughs> taking it personally yeah I kicked um, the dorks <laughs> <laughs> we would not have been friends we would have been frenemies <laughs> okay but one more thing one more thing that we had touched on that I think we should discuss you know we're talking about struggles with growing up and you you of course highlighted the cartoonish nature of some of these fantasy images and idealized people that kids want to become or want to sleep with or all this stuff i find it fascinating that when you look at the ftm youth culture specifically the types of men that are being kind of propped up as oh, who yeah. I wish I could be are not at all men what you think <laughs> of as an adult man they're no. kind of like Boys. the hot guy in like a magazine like who's like an underwear model but he's just like cool and funny and like there's Yo. nothing like you know I think about adult men and they're kind of balding and they're kind of hairy in the wrong places and they're kind of boring and they're thinking about all the responsibilities of finances. Yeah, they're they're serious. And this is not always true. And of course, there are a lot of adult men who are also carefree and wonderful. But like when you ask these girls, what, who do you wish you were? They never describe someone like their father. No, they never even think of They're describing like a K-pop star. Very much a K-pop star. A cute little K-pop star that frankly looks very young and girlish, even though he's a boy. (laughs) And acts young and girlish, even though he's a boy. Whether he's a trans boy or a boy, he's going to be girlish and young and juvenile and sweet. Very sweet. Or gay men. We're going to have an upcoming episode all about this. It's going to be great. But yes, keep going. And they, they, when you ask them about old age, there's blank. There's no like, well, what will it be like being a trans man when you're 50 or when you're, when you're 70? And they have never even thought about it. They haven't gone beyond 25. 
yeah. at all. They really haven't. Yeah. They have not come. They've gone into college and they're going to be wearing this in college. And then they might get a job in a cool apartment with their mates. But they have not in their brains gone anywhere no. near. And when you're getting older and w- what life will be like. I remember when I did that film Trans Kids and I was discussing with the trans men and I was saying, what's it going to be like when you're like 60 and 70? And you could just see they were like, what? I've never thought 60, 70. I'll never be seen as we all, you know, that's youth. Yeah, for you. at yeah. that age, nobody yeah. really does think but about I, it. I was making the point that like a lot of men turn quite womanly and a lot of women turn quite manly. Mm, interesting. It merges. Do you know what I mean? So the the the, the, the average seventy year old man looks kind of there's a femininity in their body. Mm. You know what I mean? And vice versa. It's like we merge into all the one really at at a certain age, and um, they just wanted me to stop talking. <laughs> they're just like so horrified by anything to do with old age that they're. And I suppose that is the freedom of youth, and I, you know they'd be unusual if they could think about it. But when you're kind of doing something that has massive implications on your body back we you know at in the in the long term they kind of have to face that they have to have those conversations and if they can't conceptualize them there's a very strong argument well then they can't conceptualize the decision they're making that it's hand in hand and i mean interestingly a lot of kids who are i would say kids young adults their argument is, I'm an adult. You can't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this pseudo-autonomy, I think, that some kids feel they are achieving when they insist on rushing into a big medical decision because it seems like such an adult decision. Yeah, but that's But they we've... haven't really taken the adult process to get there. No. And then they have parents telling them they're so sophisticated and so wise and so intelligent, which doesn't help. I think they could do with being told it's it's not a very sophisticated argument. It's but maybe is that too combative, do you think? No, I, I, you know, think I mean, I, I've heard I've heard that exact dynamic where parents make it really clear that they don't think this is a mature decision. And some, you know, it's kind of like imagine and I don't mean to be infantilizing, but let's just take a different example. If you t- had a seven-year-old demanding to have cookies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you said, you know, you're not a grown-up, you can't make that decision, she's not going to say, you're right, mommy, thanks for being the responsible person who thinks about my health. (laughs) They're going to say, yes, I can make that decision if I want to. So (laughs) I don't think think that saying saying that always has the intended effect. I, I think there's probably a healthy place in the middle. I often tell parents, if you have a kid in this situation, most likely what's happening is they do not feel capable in no. other areas of their life. So if you can help this child to develop some actual autonomy and actual life skills, then you can say, look, I'm so proud of you. It was so great when you were able to do A, B, and C by yourself. So, I mean... The, the kind of antidote to this, I think, is to encourage the developmentally appropriate steps towards independence, like make your kid get their driver's license, you know, make yeah. them get a volunteering job somewhere that it kind of pushes them out of their comfort zone. Yeah, make them go through the kind of tasks of moving from adolescence to adulthood. Yes. 
that yes. have nothing to do with gender and everything to do with learning to confront the reality of growing up. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 